Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. I'm John Hare, and you've found the place where we talk horses. I hope you're getting through the global pandemic in good health. It's great we have horses to retreat to when the world gets a bit crazy. Well, I got an email saying that I needed to have Canadian horseman and clinician Jason Irwin on as a guest. You know, there are a lot of talented horse trainers out there, and many of them don't get the attention they deserve. I think Jason is one of them. Jason and I spoke on the phone, and I discovered that last year they invited him to the big equine affair shows on the East Coast. He was scheduled this year to appear at the Western States Expo. (laughs) Of course, everyone's 2020 schedule got thrown into the tumbler. Anyway, I thought you'd like to get to know a little bit more about Jason and his wife Bronwyn. They have an interesting journey through horsemanship that is far from over. So here from Ontario, Canada, is my conversation with Jason Irwin. Good morning, Jason. How are you doing? Oh, real good. How are things in Bruce County, Ontario? <laughs> Sunny for a change. And that uh, we've had some pretty good weather here, so we're in a pretty good mood about it. And are, how are you holding up during all the uh, COVID virus stuff? Uh, pretty decent, considering it's definitely an odd time to be alive. Um, but... We've been going along here. We had a lot of clinics booked for the spring, and those just weren't able to take place. So we've been busy rebooking them for the fall, and uh, hopefully things will be a little bit better by then. But then, uh, I don't know if you want to say the good news, but the one thing we've found is because a lot of people are stuck at home right now, they're kind of bored, and if they have a few acres, they're sort of wanting a horse or something to play around with. Our horse sales have been going pretty fast, actually. So it's sort of down on one end, but up on another. Yes, I tell you, the our horses have been just a great, almost a sanctuary to to be able to get away and just spend time with the horses. It's really been a, a blessing. Be, can't be around people. Well, horses horses are probably better than that anyway. I, I was going to say the next best thing, but it's probably better to be around horses than people in these times. For sure. Well, the coronavirus, everybody said stay at home, but for us, that's not nearly as hard as most people right. because we're... We're at the farm, and we kind of just go about our daily routine, and it's not all that different. Speaking about the farm, that's North Star Livestock, and that's in Bruce County. I was reading the history of that on your website, and was it your great-grandfather who traveled to Bruce County with with a mare and foal? That was... Honestly, that was so many generations back. I'm not sure which great, 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 grandfather. <laughs> I mean, greats are in there. There's a lot of greats for that one. Um, but yes, he was the first man to have a, a horse in this county. And then, uh, but my great granddad, him and his brothers were all uh, really big horse traders, and they were the biggest horse traders in this area. And that, so it was always a little bit of a, I don't want to use the word disappointment, but they were really big in the horse business. And then the next generation really didn't have that much interest in livestock. So it almost like it skipped a generation, but then my dad was always really interested in stock and he always wanted to farm. So then uh, he kind of, I don't know if you'd say picked it up again, but he started, went into the livestock deal there. I'm one of six kids. And then I guess three of the six of us are somehow involved in farming or livestock in one form or another. So you grow, grew up with horses and uh, and uh, livestock and on the farm. Did you learn most about what you know about horses from your dad? 
that's sort of a, a really long story, but I'll try to give you the 60-second version if that's okay. Sure. No, we went along when we were younger. My parents had a dairy, dairy uh, beef, and then a really big Western wear and tack shop. And although my dad was from this area and my mom and dad lived here for quite a while, they moved to Prince Edward Island, which is uh, on the farthest east end of Canada. And then I was born there. So they had the dairy and the tack and the beef and a few horses there. So that went along for a while. And then I started my first horse when I was in Prince Edward Island. And that kind of got me a little bit interested in the training end of things. And then from there, we ended up moving back to Ontario when I was about 13 years old. So then we've been here ever since. I really liked horses and I always wanted it to be what I did for a living. But I always figured it would have to be sort of a part-time thing because I didn't really know how I could be here and turn it into a full-scale uh, operation. But anyways, we went along, and we had uh, when we were in Ontario, we had beef cattle and we had horses. And then when I was in probably 20 or something like that, Canada had a few cases of the BSE, which is mad cow disease, and that just absolutely killed the cattle business here. Mm. And so we ended up selling out the cattle and then went strictly into horses just because we were having a lot more success with them. So from there we took and we didn't have enough horses of our own that we were raising. So we began running back and forth to both the Southern and the Western USA. And then we would buy a group of horses at a, at a time, bring them home. And then mostly me, my younger brother and I both, but I did more of the riding end of it where he did a lot of the day to day work, uh, but we would really work on them and then train them up and then sell them from there. And that's kind of where we really got rolling in it. So we, we were doing that in a pretty, in a pretty big way for quite a while. And that, that fascinates me, Jason, because when you're traveling down from Ontario, you pretty much had to look at horses and know almost right away whether that horse was appropriate for what you wanted it to do. And it, it fascinates me because you had to develop that eye. What kind of things do you look for when you first approach a horse? as far as whether it's not, it's, it's a, going to be a good horse for you. Uh, that would probably take you an hour to say, but I guess, well, the thing with us was we were always buying something that we were going to train and then resell at a later date. If the horse didn't kind of make you look at it right away, we didn't look at it much harder, if that makes any sense. Like there had to be something about it that kind of caught your eye right off because mm -hmm. If someone owns a horse, they will make a million excuses for it. They could do everything wrong, but they still love it, and they will make excuses for that horse all day long. Right. But when they go to buy a horse, they won't make any excuses. It's just, I like it or I don't like it. And that, so we found there, like, they needed something that was sort of an eye, an eye catcher, or they usually didn't look much farther. So we were sort of, had to look at it from the same way. You had to have a horse that, for some reason, made you, made you sort of stop and take note of it. And then once, once it you saw a horse that was sort of had that bit of flair or appeal, then you would start kind of going over it. And, and then you kind of go more for the fundamentals where its legs correct and have good feet on it um, okay. with everything in place. And then I would say the other thing is uh, temperament was really, really important because most of the folks that were getting horses from us, the horses went for the biggest range of things you can imagine. But like 99% of them just wanted a horse that was really going to be fun to be around. They wanted to do, do a little bit of everything, be safe, have a good time. And that, so if you had something that was 
really pretty and really well put together, but it was bouncing off the walls. That really was no use to us because our customers just weren't going to get along with something like that. Right, right. I was kind of browsing the catalog, and I noticed that you guys really like the Hancock horses. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, again, that kind of comes back to the same thing. The folks that we uh, sell to, they just want a little bit of everything. They want a horse they can do anything on. And that family of horses, we just found them. They're big bone. They're big footed. They stay sound. They last a long, long time. They can do a little bit of everything. You can go for a trail ride the last five days and they'll be fine. You can do a bit of arena work and they'll be good. They're probably not going to make a cutting horse or something like that, but that's not really what we're after anyway. Fundamentally, they kind of had everything we liked. Now, having said that, we don't go out and say we have to have a whole bunch of handcuffs in all our horses. And that it kind of the program sort of evolved that way. The stallions we were putting together that we would buy and add into our program. We all, we had a lot of blue roans, so we kind of kept always kept our eye out for another really good blue stallion and then another really good blue stallion. And it just seemed to sort of evolve that way to some degree. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember reading someplace, you talked about the, the mind of a Hancock horse, but I think I remember reading something about Hancock horses being a little bronky. Was that just that guy's opinion I was reading? or I've heard that myself. To be honest, we've had really, really good success. Now, again, we've gone through and we've really selected for temperament. So mm-hmm. if there was one that if we saw a horse and it, again, it was really well put together and we were thinking about it for the program, if it was sort of obvious that it was a little bit hot or going to be a little high strung or difficult, we just didn't add it into the, into the program. And right. that, so we, when you go through and really, really select on temperament, I think you're good to go. And that I find our horses, I find I get spoiled with our horses, to be honest with you, because I will go and we'll have a horse maybe sent in for training and we'll have one of the ones we've raised Ours are so much easier to start in a lot of cases. Like, I don't want to say all the time because we get sent some nice horses too. But, like, we just, it usually seems like ours, the, one that we're, the ones that we're training are just rocketing along. Like, every day they're better than they were the day before. Where a lot of other horses that work with, like, you'll have good days and bad days and good days and bad days. And then eventually you have more good days. But right. I found out it's pretty easy. So, you developed, you kind of with your dad and your brother, you go down to wherever, pick up horses, bring them back and train them. And you kind of built this knowledge over a decade or so. And now you're actually going out and doing clinics with your wife, Bronwyn, and and teaching other people what you've, what you've learned. Are you, mm-hmm. And you're traveling all over the country. How's that been? Well, it's been a, kind of an adventure, really. Well, when we were doing more of the buying horses to train and sell it used to be dad and i would be on the road all the time so we'd be the ones doing the driving and then my younger brother and my mom they both had to kind of stay home more or less because somebody had to look after the place so it was really a family affair in that part and the thing i really found with uh, as far as the learning stuff i sort of had the best classroom in the world although i would say i had the hard one and the reason for this is when a person is a public trainer and rides horses for other people, I, and I've done it too, so I'm definitely not knocking it, but a person can like sort of stretch things a little bit. Uh, what I mean by that is if somebody gets a horse sent in and they maybe just don't know what to do with it, they might tell the owner, I need another month or another two months or whatever. 
on right. that. So you can you can drag that out a little bit and still get by. When you train for yourself, that's not an option. Like the only person you can make an excuse to is yourself, and you know it's not true. <laughs> it's sort of like we would be going along, and I would have, like I'd maybe be riding 10 horses a day, and if I had a problem, I just had to figure it out. There wasn't sort of another option. And right. that, so, and then I, I think at one point I counted up between all the horses that I needed to start that we owned and the ones that were somewhat trained that I needed to keep training on. In theory, I should have been riding something like 35 head a day, which I cannot do and neither can anybody else. Right. But that kind of gives you how many horses I had to work on at a time. And it just, like, it was sort of a school of hard knocks in a way, but you were sort of forced to get better. Like, you almost didn't have a choice. And then I was always studying every single training method I could find. If somebody had an idea that I thought I could use, I could go out and experiment with it with 10 horses in one day. And I usually had a pretty good idea whether that method was any good or not pretty fast. Right. And so I could kind of, it was a way I could test everything and I could weed stuff out. Like somebody would maybe have a theory on horsemanship or a training style and you'd test it out. And then it was kind of like, well, it might work on some, but it's not really something I feel I need to use. I felt that really helped me a lot. And then later on when, uh, when I ended up marrying Bronwyn, she was, she came more from an English background so she rode more hunters and jumpers and stuff like that and then she switched over to western gaming what was barrel racing and pole mending and stuff so then when the two of us kind of combined everything we had we could cover a pretty broad range of of different horsemanship topics and that so then uh, we started doing the clinics and the first year that i did clinics i did two clinics being honest the people that hired me to do it they were more or less family friends and that, so I think it was more or less giving me a hand than anything else. The, they went over pretty well. And then the second year, I went from doing two to 20 some. And that, so it really took off fast. And uh, again, I kind of found that, again, because I had take, taken certain methods and styles and tested them on so many horses, then when I was in a clinic situation, when somebody had a problem, that was maybe a problem I dealt with 100 times before. So I right. usually felt it pretty easy. I won't say I walked in the door and everything fell into place because it didn't. I had to refine things out again and make it maybe a little bit more user-friendly. And that just because sometimes there's, I would do something, but it was hard to explain to somebody else. So I had to mm. tweak it a bit. That's a really good point because you're out there riding your 10 horses a day. And it's if I know anything about that kind of stuff, you're out there all by yourself. And now you've got to go to a clinic and try and relate to six, seven, ten other people, maybe more. Some of them are good listeners. Some of them are poor listeners. Some of them are, uh, they need, they're more visual learners. Some are empathetic learners. How did, how do you figure, you're not training the horses anymore. Now you're training the people. How big of a challenge was that? Sometimes it was really easy. And then sometimes I struggled a little bit more in the beginning. Now I won't say I never run into a problem, but like I, I feel like I've done it enough now that usually I can sort things out pretty quick. Well, for instance, the very first clinic I did, there was just some different exercises that I showed, and I knew people were sort of struggling with them. So I was trying to reword them and explain them a better way, and then you could still see that they weren't getting what I was trying to put across. And that was more my fault than theirs, because obviously I wasn't explaining it properly. But I went back after that and I kind of went over my program again and I pulled those out and then put other exercises in that made the, the, 
got the same thing done, mm-hmm. but were a little bit easier to explain, and it was easier for people to see why we were doing what we were doing or why they were doing what I was asking them to do. Great. So there are certain things that I would do at home that I maybe wouldn't train as much in the clinic, but something else I'll run into, everybody with their horse is at a different place. So if I'm out there trying to teach them to do something really complicated, but their horse doesn't have the foundation or the previous training necessary to do those maneuvers, I'm kind of spinning my wheels and I'm probably probably frustrating them at the same time. So mm-hmm. I have to kind of go to the clinic with the information that will appeal to the majority of people. But something that I try to do so that, it, again, I can't have everybody happy is I'll go to each person and say, okay, what's your goals? What's your, what problems are you having? What would you like to accomplish? And then, if I can't cover those things in the clinic setting, I'll help them after the clinic one-on-one or something like that. So I really, I really, really try to have it where everybody walks away feeling, okay, here's some stuff that I can go home that's practical that I can use and I can right. improve, and improve with. Your clinics are probably made up mostly of recreational riders? Uh, majority. Now, right. they're recreational riders from a big variety of backgrounds. Right. So it's it's sort of maybe funny looking in a way because a lot of times someone will ride their horse and then I'll take it for a few minutes and show them something and get it back. But I might be getting off one that's a, a pony that's 13-2 and then I might be getting onto a draft cross at 17-2 or then a gypsy van and a quarter horse. <laughs> and one person will be in an English saddle, one's in a Western, one's an Australian, one's in a bareback pad. <laughs> so we just, we, it's everybody. And do you find that there's one or two things that most people struggle with in general that that is the biggest hurdle for the recreational rider to get over? I would say the thing that the horses, and this is maybe the horses and the people, the horses generally don't have enough of a foundation on them. They don't know how to do the fundamentals. So like a horse will come in and it will it'll walk, trot, but it doesn't know how to canter and it mm-hmm. it will go forward nicely but can't back up and it will there'll be one thing that's good and then one thing that's not as good and that so usually the foundation is what we're always trying to tell people you need more foundation here's how to get the the real the stuff that's really going to matter because sometimes it's sort of easy to i guess i would say get off into the weeds they'll be really going into a particular training technique to do a really high-end maneuver and you're like, well, you're missing some of the things that are gonna gonna matter. It's like putting a bigger engine in your car, but the wheels are all flat. Like it doesn't matter if you're missing some of the, the important stuff. Right. And that so I would say that's one thing. But I think probably as far as the people themselves go, the thing that everybody needs to work on, and I work on myself on this all the time, is getting a better feel for horses. For instance, when you go to pick up on a rein and ask a horse to turn, if on a scale of one to ten a two would cause that horse to turn and you go in constantly pulling with a five that you're never going to get better and your horse is never going to get better. Mm-hmm. But you have to kind of explain or come in with a one if you get the response and then bump up to a two if you need it. And, that, and then after a while you can get by with just a one and that, mm-hmm. but just kind of getting that feel. And that's probably one of the harder things to explain to people, but if they kind of get it, it's one of the, it's the thing that will make the greatest difference in their horsemanship in my opinion anyway. All right. That's good advice. That's really good advice. Well, uh, we're going to take a little break here for our sponsor, Total Saddle Fit. And then when we come back, I want to hear what you think the rest of your year is going to be like. Are you going to be doing clinics? Just where you're going to where you're going to be headed for the rest of 2020?
I want to thank Total Saddle Fit for sponsoring the Woe Podcast. Total Saddle Fit makes the shoulder relief cinch. With its unique shape and contours, the shoulder relief cinch redirects the latigos of your saddle to improve your horse's range of motion in the shoulders. The shoulder relief cinch is robustly padded and cutaways in the places where your horse needs it. Total Saddle Fit wants you to try this innovative new take on the cinch by offering free worldwide shipping. That's right. Try it for 30 days risk-free. I've got one I use on my quarter horse mare Jesse and my Mustang Scratch, and I really like the look and feel of the shoulder relief cinch. Over 10,000 riders rely on the shoulder relief cinch. Find your perfect size, color, and material at totalsaddlefit.com and tell them you heard about it on the Woe Podcast. We're with Jason Irwin from Bruce County, Ontario. He's a horse trainer, travels the country doing horse horsemanship clinics, has been to many of the big expos. And what's the rest of the year is going to be like for you, Jason? Do you think there are going to be any of the expos going on? I really don't know. Uh, I was supposed to be in California in May at, at Western State Horse Expo, and I was a clinician there. That got postponed to July, so as of the moment, I'm not sure if that's happening or not. And then there is a, a big expo in Western Canada that we had talked about going to, and again, it's just they don't even know if it's going to happen. Right. So all of us are just kind of sitting around waiting on the rules. Now, they have relaxed things a little bit here, and people are going to the barn more and stuff like that. But the limit, I think, is five at a time, which, if you include the instructor, that definitely isn't enough for a clinic, let alone an expo. <laughs> and that, so it'd be, you'd feel pretty unpopular if you're right. people doing a clinic. I don't know. We're just kind of waiting uh, to see what happens on that end of it. I don't have a clue. I wish I knew. So if people, you know, and this is the, to me, I try to look at the, positive side of this i mean we're all supposed to be sticking around close to the house but you've got some videos that are on your website so if people need to work more on their horses uh, you've got something for them right there what tell us a little bit about that well earlier in the year we we released uh, a groundwork program so it's how to get your horse handy and responsive on the ground and then it's available online and you can go to our website to see it and then uh Actually, I guess you're always supposed to look for the silver lining of things. And just because we are sort of stuck home like everybody else because of the COVID thing, we're going to be videoing quite a bit here over the next while. Uh, mm-hmm. The previous weeks have been pretty dark and dreary and rainy here, so it's pretty hard to do. But now <laughs> it finally seems like we've gotten into spring. So we're going to be making quite a few more DVDs and stuff over the next bit. So that'll be kind of where we put our time and effort for the next while. Plus, I imagine you're still training horses for North Star and and just going about that livestock business too, right? Oh, yeah. We're here every day riding and training and stuff like that. So we've got quite a few of our own that we've been working on. Oh, soon, <laughs> it never really seems to stop here. As soon as one group goes out, we grab another bunch of our horses and start <laughs> on the next bunch and stuff like that. So actually not being able to go to the clinic, although I wish I was going to them, probably opened up the only little bit of time we were going to get to work on the DVDs and things like that. So I guess uh, I'm trying to look at it as a class half full deal. So we'll, we'll dive into that one. But uh, no, we're always doing 
we're always training horses here at home. That just never ends. That's great. And if people want to find out more about Jason Irwin and North Star, where, where can we send them? Oh, lots of places. <laughs> uh, the, the ones for our, well, like my wife and I, Bronwyn and I, our horsemanship business is called Jason and Bronwyn Irwin Horsemanship. Our Facebook page goes by the same thing, but the best way there is to go to our website, which is just www.thehorsetrainers.com. And on there, you'll see our, our clinic information, our video information, list of expos we're going to or have been to and things like that. And then uh, for the farm end of it, the website is www.northstarlivestock.com. And then the Facebook page is just North Star Livestock. And I kind of like it that uh, when I'd see a trainer that whose wife is somewhat involved in the business too, it, the majority of riders in the recreational area are women. And so she kind of probably keeps you a little bit grounded when you're doing those clinics. <laughs> well, that's the theory. Uh, that actually, I, I kind of end up getting my wife in a horse deal. <laughs> <laughs> what happened was uh, I was I got a call one day about a black filly we had. So anyways, I was talking back and forth with the lady on the other end of the phone, and uh, she bought the filly over the phone. The lady that was phoning is brown one now. Uh-huh. But she lived about uh, six or seven hours east of here, so I never really went to that area or anything. She got the horse home, and then she sent me a picture, and it was her and the filly, and I couldn't kind of help but notice. I've seen the filly many times, but I was kind of looking at the girl, thinking she was awfully nice looking too. <laughs> and then she had the filly for a week or two, and then of all things, it was killed by a cougar or a, or a bear. They're oh. not their wit. And that, so that was obviously not good at all. Right. And, uh, but then uh, several weeks after that, her and her sister came to the farm, and then uh, she picked out another filly, and she bought it, and that's when I first met her. So we kind of got and <laughs> kind of going back and forth. But I think she ended up buying, like, three or four horses from me before we got married. And they were, <laughs> they were, so anyway, I thought I was pretty clever. I kind of stole all these horses and got the girl too, but then we got married. So like, Bronwyn came here and I got all the horses back again. <laughs> <laughs> so you can look at that as a really, really good thing, or I got outsmarted. I'm not sure which is the story. <laughs> who outsmarted uh, who on that? <laughs> yeah, when I look back, uh, for a while there, I was flying high, and then I was like, who is the, who is the sheriff who one of the two of us? <laughs> Now, with her as part of it, it's a really big deal because she's better at some parts of it than I am, and I know that. Um, mm. She's really, really good with people on the marketing end of it, the social media stuff. She's better at that than I am uh, with the with the DVDs and the, the video editing and stuff like that. I was on camera a little bit more than she was, but at the same time, she was the one that did all the, all the behind-the-scenes stuff, editing and putting things together and stuff like that. The two of us kind of complement each other. We both sort of have our strengths in this part of it. That's a, that's the best part of it right there is when you can complement each other. Well, this has been great fun. I'm glad you contacted me. I'm glad we got a chance to chat. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to add? I can't think of too much. If I get talking, I'll probably go for another hour. <laughs> so maybe you better cut me off while you got a chance. <laughs> well, it's been great fun, and uh, I wish you all the best. Thanks so much. That will do it for another episode. Thanks to Jason Irwin for being on the show. You'll find all the links to Jason's Facebook page and website in the show notes at wopodcast.com. Click on over there and see what they have going on. 
wopodcast.com is the same place you can find all our episodes. There are well over 200 in the library now. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. As I mentioned in the last show, my production schedule is a bit in flux. When I run across a good guest or an interesting story, I'll do my best to get it out. Sadly, it won't be on a regular schedule. The best way to know when I release an episode is to simply subscribe on whatever service you listen to. It's all free. In the meantime, I would like to hear about your horse. Do you have a story to tell? Share your story with us. My email is john at wopodcast.com or connect with me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram under the name wopodcast. Hey, and share a few photos of you having fun with your horse. I love seeing that. Thanks again for listening and sharing the podcast. Stay safe and healthy. So until next time, for Renee, this is John Hare saying, go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody.